The subject for the evening talk is the cessation of mind-body. Sometimes we read and hear about the uh, debate which takes place and which has a long-standing history of it, to it, of some generations, let us say, between what we might refer to as the creationists and the evolutionists. And this debate brings it uh, forward, out of the mind, a widespread range of views and opinions, either for or against, and the various reasons which give support to the, that mind, to that form of the thinking mind. And sometimes we observe in ourselves and with others, uh, perhaps referring, perhaps quite often to the latter view, the view of evolution and the movement in time of life, of life forces, of human beings, and it tends to carry in the, the thread and the stream of that view a implication of making progress in time, evolving in time. And then we do bring in to give support to the, that uh, view in the field of thought um, notions and interpretations, and these notions and interpretations tend to imply by their uh, repetition as though there was, shall we say, unformed matter first. This unformed matter became formed matter, and formed matter aspects evolved into consciousness and evolved to the state where we are as a species or individually at this present time. And rather than d debate the uh, correctness or incorrectness um, of this view, I'm much more concerned with the typical kind of consequences that, that can come as a result of perpetuating this view and how the consequences of it can actually be a form of obstruction to liberation. But I don't think the evolutionary view, uh, as well as the creationist view, and the way we perpetuate it, really serves the deeper inner welfare of the human being, which is, I think, essentially heart awakening and one's emancipation. When we think in this way, and of course as we see very much, how much our thinking about influences our notion of what reality is, influences what we give shape to. The way we think influences our notion of what reality is and what we give shape to. And when we are 
involved in evolutionary theories, making progress, development theory, and taking that up as though that view was the truth of things. That view, in a way, as far as the living present goes, tends to make the living present the servant of tomorrow. I'm making progress in what I'm doing, I'm, I'm developing what I'm doing, and I see that the, that, that is, in the present time, the effect of what has gone by. My evolution, shall I say, as a human being, has brought me to this point. If I keep on practicing, if I keep on engaging in what I'm doing, if I keep on developing, then this point becomes the cause for some future benefit, future effect in the future. So I find myself in the notion of time, progress, evolution, whether the larger or more subtle explanations of it, consistently referring to the present as an effect or as a cause. An effect of what was or a cause for what will be. And I have given such reality to my thought about what reality is. I've given such substance through my thought. I think that is the truth. That it's simply either cause or effect, what I'm experiencing today. And because, as human beings, whether it's in the scientific community or in the business community or in the spiritual community or, or any other, because we get into a framework of thinking, the thinking mind at work, in this particular way, we tend to, as it were, derive out of it a, spirit, a social conspiracy that that's the real nature of things. Here, this is the effect in the result of long time or short time, and this effect is the cause for long time or short time. As though it had nothing to do with, that's the way I think it is. As though thought was actually able to uh, render itself in its application the, a statement which is ultimately, actually, factually, everlastingly true. Where did this thought come from? How come so few people on earth ever stop to ask themselves, where did this thought come from which was so sure of itself about its series of evolution, practice, progress, development, and that we're all going somewhere and some of us will get there sooner or later? There's no opportunity in that belief, in that way of thinking, to, to allow some doubt about it. No matter how many Nobel Prizes these, the theorists have got for all their wasted effort, When we begin to stop and to look more carefully at the immediacy of life, 
One of the things which becomes apparent in the mind body, in the mind world, when we speak of life, again, a general term, what is life? Life is mind, include, including the realm of feeling here, heart, mind, and including the body, which has a codependent relationship, and I'm including the world of things, which as things, as the environment, has a co-relationship with mind-body. So we speak of life, mind-body-world hyphenated, we might say. When we tend to look at life in the initial observation of life, as you and I have been doing in these days here together, the general assumption which goes upon the looking at life is that even when we say of seeing things as they are, which is doubtful in itself, but seeing things as they are, the general kind of implication is that there is the world of objects. I see somebody, him, her, doing this or that. I'm not projecting onto the person, I'm not drawing uh, lots of conclusions, I just see that human, human being passing before my eyes. I, I hear that the sound of the, the birds, I uh, smell the, the food emerging from the kitchen, I taste the food and the drink on my tongue, I, I touch the body, I touch the, the ground uh, around me, I feel the touch. And we might say, it, and it would Im seem to imply with us that there is the world of these different things, these things come to me and and I observe them, I am mindful of them. And if there are less projections going on about this world of things, then I will say in our language, we will say, I'm seeing things more clearly, I'm seeing things as they are. The very reduction of some of the projections, the likes and the dislikes being one expression of the way projections can work, the very reduction of that seems to bring a little bit more closeness, we might say closeness, a little bit more connection with things, the bare things of life, the bare actualities of life. But, and I think partly because of mm, a material way of looking at life, it appears that the things are there already as they are, that bell, that door, that meal, whatever it might be, things are there already, and I simply recognize what exists in the world. That these things of, of the world are already present. I come into the world, and then through my consciousness, through my training, through my conditioning, I begin to recognize what's already here before I arrived. And this view seems to be self-evident. It is typical self. <laughs> that the view is there, it seems so agreeable, and in a way in which it makes the world of things prior to the relationship to them.
what would it be what would it be for us to wonder about that what the teachings are saying is that in a way we tend to underestimate the potency and the power of the mind in giving shape to the way we experience the world. We seem to imagine that our mind is a kind of empty space which just reveals the way the world is. This thing here, which and a sight, a sound, a smell, a taste, and a touch, the things of the world, and the mind just shows these things of the world. And what we perhaps don't realize is that the potency of the mind is such that it gives the notion of things in the world. It gives the notion of inherent, separate substances, unique and different under the, unto themselves. So when there is the force of projection, however it may be, and if you have a situation here in your life, in your days here of projection, it helps. What is the projection? The Buddha says, we must never neglect the awareness of the, and the, and the precise words are, of the significance of the influence of the activities of the thinking mind. Never to underestimate, never to neglect the influence of the activities, the quote-unquote, of the activities of the thinking mind. When we are caught in some area of projection, the projection, the movement, accumulated movement, moves in such a way it alights on and in its alighting on that becomes something. It becomes the issue, an issue. So there's the attention that goes, there's the force of this case projection, sometimes likes and dislikes, reaction for or against, attraction or aversion, it alights on and in that, that becomes, to all intents and purposes, one's world. And we find ourselves, as it were, living in a bubble. And that bubble is the world that we have not created, the mind cannot create, but much more the world which we have fixed as the way things are. What, what is meant by the mind here that does this? What are the factors of the mind which makes this happen? And, as I mentioned in a previous talk, feelings are a component here. Intentions are another. The contact are another. The thoughts about are another. When that's, those things are working together, 
the world of separate things, concrete existences separate to themselves becomes fixed. And we wonder why we can't meet each other. We wonder why we are locked into so many differences with each other. We wonder why we're not experiencing being connected with each other. How is it possible under the shadow and the force of projection? And so sometimes we find ourselves in the movement of the projection wanting to find, to feel secure with the projection of language, impression and thought to get as many others into the same projection so that we can all be in a little goldfish bowl together. Some of us don't want to jump into that goldfish bowl. And when that's there, there of course there will be others who in that small world, whatever that small world is, will be agreeable to being in that other goldfish bowl. And never the twain meet. Those of you who have experiences in uh, the insight meditation tradition will know, and it's quite uh, useful, the, the great v uh, value and usefulness in the conventional life of being aware of impermanence, both in its larger context and also in a more subtle, refined way to be really aware of birth and death, of the coming and going of events and circumstances, of the changes which occur in life in which we have no control over. And those changes may appear to be initiated from so-called outer events, or the changes which may occur, may occur through so-called inner events. And in either case, whether it's an inner event which brings about a change or an outer event, it only shows to us this constant revelation in our world, in our experiences of change whether it's debatable, whether that change means progress, evolution, devolution, or whatever. But we might say there's changes which are taking place. And sometimes in the teachings, the there has been, and unusually so for a spiritual teaching, a great degree of encouragement to really notice change taking place, to notice the coming and going of things to notice the coming and goings of experiences, of sensations. But sometimes we forget that this awareness of change, of anicca, of the coming and going of things, is really a reminder to the mind that 
it's there to pierce the bubble of the validity of the projections. It's to encourage us to let go. It's an encouragement through the insight, not that we don't hold on to things because of the changing experiences which show itself in the mind. When this is forgotten, what happens is that anicca, the change, the impermanence, becomes viewed with thought as the way things really are. They become viewed as this is the nature of things. It becomes the truth. Everything is changing, everything is impermanent. And it gains an, it, ga it becomes a belief, a philosophy, a science, a religion, a belief. The Buddha has never, no awakened heart would never draw to the conclusion of the ultimate truth of impermanence and change. What happens is, I think, with thought and with just saying change, with just saying impermanence, and really noticing that it does loosen valuably the grip of the attention, the grip of the mind, because it sees nothing worth clinging on to, nothing is worth being possessive about. And that helps to loosen the mind up. It says nothing about the nature of things. It's a device. It's a strategy to help us let go and go deeper. In a lovely passage in the, in the text there, the Buddha says, when one goes deeply into these things, as a number of you are, are doing here, there is, he says, a natural dropping away of the interest in focusing upon impermanence. One loses the interest in seeing the rising and falling of phenomena, whether it's in the gross or subtle form. Not through any deliberate, I have to now let go of watching a rising and falling, a coming and going, change and impermanence. But as one goes deeper into the nature of things, that thought and that interest and that kind of attention isn't necessary because one begins to see more deeply that seeing of impermanence is a perversion of perception. The seeing of impermanence is a perversion at a subtle level of perception, though it's very agreeable in daily life. We agree with that with each other. We can agree with that at the standpoint of meditation as a very useful resource and tool for helping us to let go and to not cling and be so identified, but it says nothing about the nature of things. And the tradition, if I may say, has l so often forgotten this and has become 
preoccupied and close to being obsessed with seeing a Nietzsche. They need a 12-step program. So what things matter and are useful and are valid in the conventional world and serve a real usefulness? Never underestimate the, quote-unquote, the activities of the thinking mind which makes assumptions which take the usefulness of it far too far, particularly on claims of what is the nature of things. Sometimes, and the numbers have reported small groups, one-to-ones, and at other occasions. Some um, strange way, that is a strange, unfathomable, unworkable way, we begin to recognize that we're, that we're not just reflecting the world around with our mind, but in some way or other, the movement of the mind and the thinking mind and the projecting mind is giving shape to ideas of the way that it is. Even to see impermanence means something, something is impermanent. So we need to fix and make something and then for that what is made then to be perceived as impermanent. So this movement and projecting mind and the thought which goes along with it, sometimes quite spontaneously, sometimes mysteriously, mystically, there's some emergence which comes in which the label, the thoughts about, the description doesn't seem authentic. But the very world of language and the construction of concepts don't seem to be truly saying anything about Sometimes we see that in the immediacy of the moment, the mind moves subtly or grossly, in this case, in a subtle way. The mind moves, and in that movement of the mind, the world gains its character, gains what it is, and that the world couldn't be what it is for us without some statement, in some expression of perception, thought, feeling, from the mind. And then we can't get the mind out of the way to know what things are because the mind gives shape to the things. And something begins to happen inside of us. And we begin to take an incredibly acute interest in these activities of the thinking mind. But in a way, we, we come to get a sense that we, 
that there's no thought, ultimately, there are no thoughts which we can possibly rely upon. That they genuinely are quite unable to tell us anything. It's as though the stream of the thought, when we're thinking about something, it's so the thought is as a tiny, as it were, particular, is trying to express something far and away beyond itself. Far and away not of itself. Far bigger than itself could, could ever, ever possibly be. And it's not that there's so much the cutting off of thought, the ne negation of thought, but there's some sense, some intuition, some ac acknowledgement of thought doesn't say anything about anything. So we find ourselves in a rather rare, as human beings, an unusual predicament. And I think this predicament shows itself in cer certain ways. Sometimes we're concerned about our religious sensitivities towards life, and they may show themselves in a variety of activities and a variety of sensibilities, in a way. Forms, rituals, ceremonies, participations in things, methods, techniques, all forms to nourish and encourage. And with that goes the language which gives affirmation to the forms. And we find ourselves, you and I and others, familiar with a certain way of speaking about. As we go, shall we say, deeper into things, it's as though we're not only being asked to leave behind the, the world of religion and religious forms, but we're also being asked to leave behind, in a way, as much as possible, the language which gives support to everything. We begin to see that our thoughts, even in a tradition like this, which is so determined to try to capture the way things are with thought, that even these thoughts really have to fall by the wayside. And when that begins to happen, therefore, the usefulness of the mind, the sense of its utter limitations, and therefore its limitations in knowing the world which it fixes, then not only is the mind having to, as it were, fall away, lose its potency, but the body and the environment too. And sometimes in that mystical journey, we are afraid. We're afraid to 
explore that to see what that what that's all about because we've built up our sense of the way things are and what is through the frames and through the interpretations and through the movement of our mind and we think that's how we know that's the only way we'll ever know and it seems logical and practical and necessary and when we begin to get a sense perhaps that world of mind and world perhaps that's the bubble perhaps that is the bubble that human beings are spellbound by and one just gets a tiny tiny glimmer of light about it a tiny glimmer of space around it so outside of that bubble once that space begins just to get a slight glimpse of something other and sometimes the fears arise it's as though we're asking of ourselves uh, a gargantuan task of saying am i am i ready am i willing to leave behind my whole view of existence a whole view which seems to be so necessary and agreeable to me and agreeable to lots of others am i really really able and willing to step out as it were as it were out of that bubble sometimes in in that in the as it were leaving the conventional context of mind body environment sometimes when we have heard perhaps in the past and in the present of no mind when we've heard the language of the cessation of existence when we've heard the language of the ending of the mind body process instead of sounding something very far down the road for us very removed and abstract and theoretical and and unwieldy unmanageable in its own way sometimes when we really when there's some space around what is called mind body environment sometimes the ending of that as we know it it begins to make some sense that it's not unreasonable that it's not um undiscoverable unrealizable far away from where i am as a human being right here right now but it's something which is sometimes tangibly close and there is a kind of strange trust in those times that mind body world in a way will look after itself if we are prepared to go on that journey of the utter heart's awakening where the sting of death has lost its significance
So I say the heart's awakening is very close at hand. I say immediate enlightenment is available to all here. I say the essence of the spiritual teachings, of the teachings of the Buddha are being shown and revealed in these days here as they have been revealed and shown in generations after generations. And I say, therefore, the cessation of mind and body is not something distant and strange, but something which is discoverable. And out of that emerges a, a quiet joy which seems to be inexhaustible. May all beings see into life. May all beings explore the world of appearances. May all beings abide with realization. So let's have our two or three minute quiet period together, please. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.